Welcome to our special second Dispatch podcast of the week. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes and Fox News' Brett Baer. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, we'll talk some 2020 politics, why Joe Biden's accuser isn't getting any TV time, Biden's likely VP picks, and Justin Masha's entrance into the race. Then we'll ask Brett to grade the president's job on coronavirus to date. And we'll end with some revelations about Stephen Brett's acapella past. guest today, Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Fox News. And before we even get started, just so cool this weekend that you're doing this Sunday, 7 to 9 p.m. called America Together. And you and Martha McCallum are hosting a virtual town hall with President Trump at the Lincoln Memorial. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's, uh, I, you know, the Lincoln Memorial in and of itself will give it a different uh, a different look. Uh, we are going to do it social distanced apart. Uh, we will bring in questions from around the country, from uh, businesses big and small, from people who are concerned about the opening of the states and the different co- uh, spots around the country to the president. So we'll play those sound bites, and then obviously Martha and I will follow up and uh, on the issues of the day. We did one in Scranton, Pennsylvania which worked out well. Um, this one is going to have a different flavor to it, but the fact that it's on the <laughs> National Mall is uh, really cool. But that's only the the second most interesting thing that we really need to talk about before we launch off, which is you went to college with Steve? I did. <laughs> I did. He was a year below me. We were singing lives together. Oh, my God. Like, I like to say that I hazed Hayes, but I didn't really. <laughs> tried. You tried. tried. What was his beer of choice? God, I think it was Labatt's maybe. I, don't, I'm not oh. I did like Labatt's. best. <laughs> let's, let's be honest. I was not picky. Yeah. <laughs> Mickey's Big Mouth. I'm not I sure. did drink Mickey's Big Mouth. That is true. <laughs> okay. Well, that, um, you know, it undermines your credibility, Brett. Uh, quite true. a bit, but you think, you think he's on the panel for a reason? He's, he knows too much. <laughs> he knows too much information. I have no choice to put him on the panel. This is true. I was actually I was texting with uh, a couple of our buddies from college last night, trying to come up with things that I could use to uh, oh my to spring on you. And it, it, there was a well, split. Listen, I've got to go. Thanks so much. <laughs> I've got to be on Fox News Channel. We'll the, the problem is the, the, some of the stuff I said, I'd like to catch him a little off guard, but I don't want to really, you know. So there was these two separations of, of, of stories that we, uh, we decided we'd just pass and give you, give you sort of a big pass. That's a, that's a good idea. I'll save, I'll save it for another time. <laughs> I see Brett taking a deep breath. He's yes. relaxing. Thanks, thanks better now. All right. All right. Let's dive into substance. So Ben Smith had a very interesting piece today at the New York Times about why none of the major networks are putting Tara Reid, who has accused former Vice President Joe Biden of sexual assault, on the air, that the only offer she's gotten is from Fox News. And here's how he ends it, Brett. I, I want to get your reaction to how you see this as, uh, as a journalist and at Fox News, for that matter. Journalists cannot predict how viewers might react to television interviews with Ms. Reed or where their reporting on her claims will lead. They don't have to. 
They should just make sure their audience knows they're reporting hard and doing the work with an open mind. Yeah. I like kudos kudos to Ben. I mean, he's done some really good work here. He's he's interviewed the editor of the New York Times about the disparity between the coverage of Brett Kavanaugh and those allegations and the coverage of Tara Reid and her allegations. That I think is really where this story, you know, on a media angle is. Uh, it is so stark, like night and day between what we saw with Brett Kavanaugh and what we're seeing now. Uh, I think that the decision to not even ask her to be on, the, the journalistic ethics usually is let the chips fall where they may. I'm not saying that Tara Reid's story 100% is backed up. There are holes in it. There are questions to be asked about her past and some of the things she said. But you can't do one thing on sexual allegations and go, you know, everything to the wall and then nothing not even a question to the candidate in this case. But let me push back on that a little, which is you're comparing it to Kavanaugh and and should we hold that as the gold standard of how Kavanaugh was covered in the media? And two, uh, compare it maybe to the allegations against President Trump and how those were treated in the media. Which were covered and asked about. And Trump was asked about them numerous times, numerous different ways. Now, he blew them off. He blew off the questions. He said it was all fake news. Um, But we covered those cases. We covered the Stormy Daniels. We covered all of the allegations along the way. Um, You at least have to ask the candidate about it. Uh, There have been 142 questions to Joe Biden, not one of them, about Tara Reid. Um, I just think that there's a, a big vacuum there and uh, more needs to be to be known. I think today you had House Speaker Pelosi asked about that disparity between what she said about Brett Kavanaugh's allegations and what she's saying now. And she said she didn't want to be lectured. So I just don't think that that's the way to do it. Yeah, it's such it's I mean, from my perspective, it's such a massive double standard. And yeah, I think that the thing that the Ben Smith column really highlights is that this stuff existed long before Donald Trump came on the scene. I mean, the conservative skepticism of mainstream media um, existed for decades and I think existed for a reason. And this Ben Smith uh, column gets to, to some of that. But what's the, I mean, I guess if you're starting sort of from scratch, if you're thinking about this as a, as a journalist from the beginning, it's not appropriate to ask candidates about every allegation that's leveled, right? I mean, doesn't there, shouldn't there be some sort of baseline level of corroboration before it reaches yeah. the point? I mean, you can't ask about every single um, allegation made against the candidate, right. which was, I right. think, unfortunately, the standard in the Brett Kavanaugh coverage. But it's not the right standard, is it? No, that's true. I mean, and that shouldn't be the gold standard. It's just the one that we're comparing to uh, because it's the last time you had a major allegation against somebody who was public. Now, the New York Times said the reason that um, it was a different focus because he was in this hearing at the time and he was a public figure. Well, hello, you have a presumptive Democratic nominee running for president. Now, I'm saying the Kavanaugh thing shouldn't be the gold standard, but Arguably, Tara Reid has more dots on the chronological timeline that point back to people knowing at least within the uh, few years of the allegation. Uh, and at least she has 
this vague call about supposedly her mother calling into Larry King live, she has exponentially more than Christine Blasey Ford had when she uh, said what she said about the allegations of Kavanaugh. I know we keep on going back to Kavanaugh, but that's our most recent example yeah. of this happening. So uh, how do you, as a journalist, approach this? If you were interviewing Joe Biden and you have his statements on Believe All Women uh, from previously and you have his denial now, I, you know, you get the next interview. What are you yeah. asking? Well, just that. You know, I, I want to know the, the, the facts. First of all, his straight denial that it happened. Uh, second of all, is there a difference between what Tara Reid is alleging and how she's treated to what you're saying in the past about all of these women? I mean, here's a perfect example. Kirsten Gillibrand, who comes out in support of Joe Biden, senator from New York. Um, she is 100 percent behind Biden. She kind of discounts the Tara Reid allegations or doesn't comment on them. But yet this is the same person who, who led a charge in the Senate really to kick out Al Franken, her Democratic colleague, uh, for something the Democrats even said uh, we, we really don't think he should be kicked out of office for. So I, I think that the story is more the disparity. You want to get to the ground truth if you can. But at least you have to get a strong denial from Joe Biden and not just his campaign behind closed doors. Yeah, let, let's broaden this out a little bit. Um, going from Joe Biden, um, the accused, to Joe Biden, the candidate. Uh, if, if you look at the, the 2020 general election for president um, from 30,000 feet, say, uh, you look at just the, the situation on the ground. You have a president who's running for re-election in an environment with negative five GDP growth and unemployment of about 20 percent. And that's just right now. That's if those numbers don't get worse, which I think it pro they probably will. His approval rating over his first three years, even before the coronavirus and all the problems it's, it's caused, all the challenges it's presented, <clears throat> was hovering in the high 30s or low 40s. If that's all we knew about this moment, we'd say that that incumbent was doomed, but would not only lose, but would lose in, in a blowout. So is this race over before it begins? No, but it's changed dramatically. And, um, you know, what we haven't seen yet is really what Donald Trump is the best at, which is casting some particular person in a negative light. Um, and, you know, he hasn't really unleashed the cannons as of yet. He has a huge war chest of money. Um, there are going to be a ton of ads. And eventually, one would think, if this COVID thing goes down and, and he gets out and about to campaign, he's going to be, you know, in his traditional Trumpian sense, going after Joe Biden in every way, shape, and form. Does that affect the numbers? Maybe. Um, Joe Biden's not the best campaigner on the stump. He may luck out that we have such a COVID situation that he doesn't have to. And he can ride the numbers and the stats you just talked about to election. But uh, it's not over yet, and I think it's going to be close no matter what. There's, there's been a bunch of reporting in recent days, just picking up on something you just said there, a bunch of reporting in recent days that uh, the president has told his campaign and Brad Parscale not to unleash a series of attacks on Joe Biden and China. 
suggesting that Joe Biden is too close to China. Um, some ads that they had apparently prepared uh, pushing that line. And Trump told his campaign it's too early to do that. What's behind that? I mean, I would say of, of the many things that Donald Trump is known for, restraint is not chief among them. What's behind that? Do you have any um, reporting or speculation about that? Well, I mean, I've, I've talked to people about the concern about the China story. You know, we, we talked about the origins of the story and the investigation. The DNI just came out with confirmation that they've launched this full scale investigation. Um, and when I was doing that reporting, uh, one of the concerns was that China holds the keys to a lot of PPE, a lot of things we still need in this coronavirus health crisis that we're in, uh, to the point where this time going really strong against China, the administration is not sure. Now, you look at what Mike Pompeo is saying and doing that seems to go against that. Um, I think that he thinks, the president may think, that China is a powerful card. And when you throw in Hunter Biden and you should throw in Joe Biden saying, come on, this China is not going to be a problem uh, in sound bites, that that's a powerful negative connotation, especially if China's looked at pretty negatively, Democrats and Republicans. So the closer you get to the election, it's a more powerful negative act. Staying on the 2020 theme, I've got some VP buckets for you to consider. We mm. have the former... Uh, former candidates who've been tested on the national stage, Harris, Warren, Klobuchar. We have the swing state options, Whitmer, uh, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, Florida's uh, Val Demings. You have Tammy Duckworth, who has like a list of first accomplishments that is, you know, in- actually very impressive. Uh, you have the progressive base bucket, Stacey Abrams, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, uh, Ayanna Presley. Uh, when you're talking to folks Are you hearing, A, that they think Biden's vice presidential pick matters? And who are the names that you're hearing most often as his smart pick? So um, this is early in the process. I think Klobuchar had a uh, a rise there at the beginning. She's very... Klobmentum. Klobmentum (laughs) at the beginning uh, because of her campaigning style, the Midwest appeal, somebody in line with uh, Joe Biden's thinking on a number of things. Um, I think uh, Whitmer is not going to sell in the current controversy over Michigan and how it's dealing with the coronavirus, whether you're pro-Whitmer or not. The heat usually takes uh, the choice away, if I had to bet. I wouldn't be surprised if there's like a, a dark horse out there, like the New Mexico governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, who is a Democrat uh, under the radar, but very accomplished Uh uh, former attorney general. She was a former uh, congressional uh, congressperson uh, from New Mexico. Obviously has um, the Hispanic bucket. Democrats, as we know, like to check a lot of uh, lists sometimes. The president's already, I mean, the the former vice president has already checked the box that it wants, he wants it to be a woman, definitively. Um, I, I think it's up in the air, but... Um, Klobuchar, if I had to bet. Does that, does that suggest that you, sorry, sir, does that suggest that you think it's a safe, that he's likely to go with a safe pick given this environment? I do. I don't think, I think, first of all, people would want to see someone who could be president right away. Um, you know, all the rumors about Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, is she angling for VP? 
Um, <laughs> that would be something. Would be unbelievable. That would be um, but I, I do think that uh, being president, being able to be president, uh, tested. So somebody on the trail who's been around the block probably is the safer pick. He said yesterday that he'd consider putting Republicans in his cabinet and that he might, in fact, announce some cabinet members ahead of November. Uh, do you think it's likely for him to uh, pick a Republican for the cabinet? Yeah. I mean, Biden, if anybody, can can reach across the aisle and pick Republicans. Um, and there will probably be some who will say yes. Um, and that'll be appealing for some um, independents. I think his biggest issue is how he presents himself and how he talks about things, and he's not been the smoothest. He's had some bumpy rides in his uh, recent interviews. (laughs) Well, perhaps this is a good segue then into the uh, third option, if you will. Justin Amash uh, from Michigan announced that he was opening an exploratory bid uh, this week with the Libertarian Party. Uh, these are all always the questions I ask. Does it matter? <laughs> it does matter. In a really close race, it matters. I mean, um, you know, Justin Amash is, a, is not a nobody, and he can present very well. Uh, he gets 1%, 2%. It, it matters in a very close race. Um, think of the Ross Perot's, think of Green Parties of old, think of Jill Stein. Um, you know, the, a few points in some of these states really makes a difference, especially Michigan. Can he get the kind of media attention that he um, probably will need, particularly given the, the likelihood that we're not going to see traditional campaigning, you know, at least for the short term future? Uh, does, is he is he is he interesting to you? I mean, would you want to interview him on special report or would you would you do a town hall with him or is he does he have something to prove before he sort of reaches that point? I think he has some to prove before we do roll out a town hall, but I definitely do an interview with him. He's interesting. His criticism of the president goes back a ways. Obviously, he left the party um, because of it. Um, And so in that sense, uh, it's not like this reveal of somebody who suddenly doesn't believe in the president and has to go his own way. I mean, he's kind of set um, and been that way as an independent. But I'd interview him. I I think he's going to have a tough time to break through, though. You're right. So we don't have a ton of data on this. He just announced, you know, 48 hours ago that he was opening this exploratory committee. But the last NBC poll said that of voters who have a negative opinion of both Trump and Biden, uh, Biden wins those voters about six to one. Uh, Is that meaning that a third party candidate like Amash hurts Biden more than Trump, if that poll were accurate, for instance. What are you hearing from inside the Trump campaign on how they see an Amash entrance into the race? Is it positive for them, negative for them? I don't, I haven't talked about this with them, but um, I think that it would be negative. I mean, if, if it's taking away from anybody, it's taking away from from Trump voter potentially, you know, a, a libertarian uh, leaning maybe doesn't go towards a Democrat. But, you know, listen, the way we are spending and what we're doing in COVID-19 changes, mixes up the whole ideological spectrum, you know. And um, so it, there's a lot of variables that we just don't know because it's so different than we thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think if you look at what was interesting in the 24 hours after Amash announced his exploratory committee. I was emailing and texting and, and uh, phoning with uh, a number of Republican strategists from around the country. And I, my view is that this 
this is the one thing or one of a few things that could give Donald Trump a big boost is an Amash uh, entry into the race because Trump has, as we were talking about earlier, his approval rating has, has, you know, hovered between 38 and 44, 45. He's had a difficult time getting above 50. Um, and the, the people who don't like Donald Trump really, really don't like Donald Trump. They're not likely to be persuaded between now and November. So you think what enables Donald Trump to win with potentially, you know, 44 or 46% of the vote, it would be a credible third party candidate. Um, that just gives people who are not happy with either parties, which again, a lot of people in this country, um, some place to, to go. Uh, you seem not to buy that. You seem to be on the other side of that. You think it, it potentially. Yeah. I just, I just don't know if he can get the traction in a democratic circle. Um, you, you have to be pretty anti Joe Biden to leave the, um, the comfortable confines of uh, what they're trying to pour, portray as the Democratic umbrella from the progressive side of Bernie Sanders and AOC uh, to the conservative Democrat. You know, they're trying to make it broad and it, it, the umbrella is put together by anti-Trump. So how does Justin Amash change that dynamic? Well, isn't it possible um, that, that people like you and me and Sarah spend way too, I mean, this is certainly true of me. Let me just speak for myself. I mean, if I look back to 2016 and, and even before, I think I overemphasized the importance of political philosophy and ideology in determining what voters do. I mean, 2016 felt to me, looking back on it, much more like an attitude election than a, you know, let's break this down by specific policy issues. And I'm voting for Donald Trump because of you know, these traditional Republican policy issues. I mean, even in the Republican primary, Trump blew up what had been kind of conventional wisdom among Republicans on those ideological lines. So couldn't couldn't you make an argument that Amash, if he comes in and, and Joe Biden has these, I mean, he really does struggle getting his answers out um, in a debate setting, in interviews. He's only going to be off the stage for a sh- short amount of time or, or uh, you know, certainly not into the fall. He'll have to be out there talking, giving answers, giving interviews, being grilled, maybe on a debate stage. And, you know, if you look at the people who aren't, aren't happy with Donald Trump, couldn't you make a case that Amash, if he just appears to be a sort of semi-sane, uh, normal person who doesn't push people away, that might be his his greatest path, whatever his sort of ideal, ideological predispositions are? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I agree with you. It wasn't ideological in 2016, but I think Hillary Clinton was uniquely positioned to be the worst candidate possible that yeah. the Democrats could run and that she alone uh, could lose to Donald Trump and that he alone could beat her because of the unique position of Hillary Clinton and the animus to be able to keep uh, – you know, the African-American vote home in some position, you know, like maybe two, three points. I don't think Joe Biden has those problems. He doesn't have that baggage. Now, if he goes out and really just does horrible and has some moment on a stage or something and uh, and then it disintegrates, then you have a different ballgame and, and you could have a different mix. But I think he doesn't lose as much if he muddles through as Hillary Clinton would lose just by who they are. This has been a real treat talking about politics and not talking about coronavirus with you, Brett, but it would be odd, I think, if we just 
skip that entirely. Yeah. So, so, uh, so last week there were a few surprises at the White House's daily briefing. One of them was you. There you were, Brett mm-hmm. Bear, not behind the desk <laughs> in the White House briefing room. Uh, Want to know your thinking on on why you went, what you gained from it, all of that. Whether you think the briefings have been helpful, hurtful. Uh, the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic overall. Yeah. So, um, you know, that used to be my seat as a, when I was <laughs> chief White House. I mean, that was my literally, literally my seat right there. Were but, we ever so young? Um, <laughs> but that was back in 2007, eight and the beginning of nine. Um, but the, um, the reason I went is because I was preempted so many times on the show <laughs> Uh, and I joked with my staff and uh, said, you know, I should just go and just do the show from there and at least get questions answered. And everybody joked and laughed around. And then we talked about it more and said, maybe I should go. And so I did. And it worked out fine. I asked a bunch of questions. And uh, surprisingly, he ended early. And so I looked at my watch and I had, it was, you know, 655. So I had five minutes to go. So I just stood up and turned around and <laughs> finished the show from the briefing room, which, um, which worked out fine. But, um, the, but uh, to your other question about the, the success of those briefings, I, I think uh, the, at the beginning, they were tremendously successful for President Trump. And he was seen, you know, feuding with reporters and, and it kind of worked for him. But then over time, the, as the weeks went on, um, there were diminishing returns. And I think his, his aides saw that and realized that. And that's why they scaled it back. Um, I think he, he has to have the substance to be able to deliver uh, as opposed to going on riffs, which he often does. And uh, that gets him into a lot of trouble. So let, let the record show <clears throat> that uh, our college buddies think that you needed to show up at the briefings because you just have such a massive ego. You needed your face on television. And that was really what. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true. That's not what they said. And I will. It's the only nice thing I'll say about you is um, it's <laughs> one of the reasons it's so fun to work with you, aside from the fact that I have all these stories about you from the past is you don't have that ego, which is uh, pretty unique in the world of television, I can say, having um, been doing TV now for, I don't know, 15 years myself. Um, sort of refreshing. The um, on, on the handling of coronavirus in general, obviously the president's polls have taken a hit uh, lately. You're, you read stories, and I think they're true. I think they're accurate stories about um finger pointing inside the White House, the president uh, shouting at his campaign manager, um, people, you know, the the HHS secretary at odds with the Treasury secretary and the coronavirus task force uh, not getting along. Lots of finger pointing, lots of frustration there. Um, Is is this the kind of thing that sticks um, or are we seeing them frustrated internally because what we're seeing externally is, has been so problematic? I think, I think it sticks depending on what the, um, what the outcome is. You know, if we as a country 
bounce back the virus, we get a handle on it. There's a treatment by the fall that is at least in the medical community believed to reduce it uh, on the way to a quickened vaccine that, uh, you know, Fauci even says could be 100 million by January if we we're on fast speed. That would be quite something. And if that happens and in turn more places open up, that some of the beginning will be forgotten. And some of the, the you know, pain knows no memory will be forgotten in the early times. But you can argue that the administration had obviously fits and starts about how to deal with this. Any administration likely would, but it was unique to this president because of how he talks about things and how he, again, goes on riffs and goes on, you know, his gut. Uh, so when they roll out a big thing in the Rose Garden about tests in CVS parking lots, you know, that doesn't transpire. And then the questions about tests get testy with him, you know, back and forth. And it doesn't look good. But if the end result is good, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference come November. Let me dig down on that a little more specifically. Of the last two months, what specific moments moment would you give the administration an A for? And what specific moment would you give them an F for? Moments that will matter six months from now in an election year. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I, he talks about it all the time now, but the, the ability to round up these ventilators and the, the ability to get public-private partnerships with companies uh, and to roll that cooperation out, I think, is, uh, was impressive. And it was impressive when they all rolled out and talked about things that they were doing. Um, obviously, ventilators are not the concern, but they were at the beginning. And you remember Governor Cuomo talking about, you know, if you don't give me 26,000 ventilators, I want you to tell the families which ones are going to die. You know, that was a real moment where he's saying, you tell the family which one's going to die because they don't have a ventilator. Well, now he's giving ventilators, Cuomo is, to all kinds of states because he has excess ventilators. I think they mobilized the Army Corps of Engineers for these stand-up hospitals really quickly. Both of those things. Um, and now those hospitals are getting taken down because they're not being used. There were like six people in McCormick Place in Chicago or something. Um, so I think those are A's. I think F's or lower on the chain is, you know, the testing rollout and what was talked about about testing, not acknowledging at first that the CDC had real, real problems uh, off the beginning and not explaining that and why it mattered. And two, relying on models that arguably were wrong and policy decisions that were made based on those models that we don't know. There's so much more that we don't know about this virus even today um, that I think, you know, there was just a lot that was uh, up in the air at the beginning. Last question to you, Steve, and then I have a, a wrap question. Yeah, just, just a little bit about the politics of this and, and the president's base. What's been so interesting to me, I mean, I think it's fair to say the president's been sort of all over on this. Um, he, he favors, strongly favors lockdowns, but then kind of backs off and says, we need to open up and then changes his mind. You know, the next day he's for uh, Brian Kemp opening up Georgia one day, and then he sort of disavows that the next day. So he's sort of been all over the place. But what's been consistent is that I would say key components of the president's base uh, among Republicans 
have been have remained very skeptical of the lockdowns and very critical of what they've done to the economy. You had Dennis Prager, who's been a pretty strong Trump supporter, tweet the other day that the lockdown is the worst decision in human history. Um, you've had some of uh, our colleagues in primetime, uh, Laura Ingram, certainly Sean Hannity has been pretty supportive of the president, no matter what he does, which he has been in the past. But Laura has been pretty critical of the lockdown uh, situation. And uh, the question I have for you is, does that matter to the president? I mean, you'd think if somebody like Dennis Prager says this is the worst mistake in human history, it would be hard for him to support the person who encouraged it or made it for president. Do you see any fraying on the president's base there or is that pretty solid? They're not voting for Joe Biden. So um, in that sense, it's unifying no matter. It's not shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue, but it is um, a policy decision. He's defending it. I mean, for the people who point to Sweden, he's tweeting out, look at Sweden's numbers compared to Norway. The fact that he's defending it suggests to me that he's listening to his medical experts. And in that sense, for all of the criticism about Donald Trump, for the most part, Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks have have determined what this looks like. I mean, all of the steps along the way have had their full endorsement, including the rollout of these guidelines for the states. So it's important to remember that this is being led by the medical experts, not really by the president of the United States. I mean, he's obviously steering it from a leadership point of view. Um, again, I think it's results-oriented. Uh, if it turns out bad and we go through a really bad time and the virus comes back and we are badly positioned and the economy takes forever, you know, you, you're likely looking at a President Biden come 2021. Okay. Now to the Brett Bear behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone sees you on TV. I'm not sure they know fully uh, that you actually spend a good amount of your free time in wonderful charitable activities. First of all, uh, this week, I understand you awarded the first of the Charles Krauthammer scholarships, uh, which is really exciting and a great honor to um, the person that it's named after. Uh, And if you want to say a few words about that. But my real question to you is, every year, you are pretty famous inside the Beltway for performing at the Gridiron Club dinner, Mm, (laughs) which also awards scholarships. And this year, it was canceled. And so my question is, what show tunes did we miss out on this year? Oh my goodness! It, it was Bear. really going to be good. I was. Uh, <laughs> did he sing in college, have... Steve? He did. So did Steve. This is this is. <laughs> oh, you know that? Wait, wait, wait! Oh my! I thought we weren't going to talk about this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah. Could... I think we both did oh. stints at the front of the house band. We did. Um, and what was Steve's go-to? I think I we're, we did a bunch of R- REM, REM covers. Or... Yeah. Is that what I said? Yeah, really. It's true. But I was also, weren't you? I mean, we, this is really probably something we shouldn't shouldn't admit. Although I loved it. I had a good time. We, I think we were both at one point or another in the uh, all men's acapella group, Men of Note. We were. We were. And men of Note. Men of Note. We were Men of Note. Always, always a pun with those things. Yes. Uh, the Gridiron, I was uh, Thomas... Jefferson? No, let's see. I can't even remember. I had we had uh, two songs. It was uh, Garth Brooks in Low Place, yeah. and um, and then I had one where I was uh, Michael Bennett, 
and uh, <laughs> I sang um, uh, what's the prison um, Johnny Cash Folsom Prison yeah Folsom Prison Folsom nice. Prison with different words but uh, we're gonna recast that I think for uh, next oh, time oh good the Great Irons you a lot know, of fun and for Char- Dr. Krauthammer let me just say it's yeah. a Fox News thing it was really great that Fox put it together um, a scholarship two people. Uh, two kids, a college scholarship for, um, and through the National Merit Scholarship Foundation, and Fox set it up for the annual Dr. Charles Krauthammer scholarships. And uh, his son Daniel did a big rollout, and uh, it's just great to be able to remember Charles. Um, we remember him all the time, but to remember him once a year like that, he would love it because he was big into education. That's wonderful. The Gridiron Dinner, by the way, is now on the record, but there's no video. So people still miss out on the outrageous outfits that you have sure. worn in the past. <laughs> That's true. Fortunately, I've, I've, I've now seasoned, so I don't have to do the first year costume. Ah, the animals. The animals, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Brett. I know you've got a busy schedule today. Always a treat to hear stories about Steve as well. Feel free to just text me any additional ones that we could add in later. <laughs> I will I will keep you as a confidential source. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brett.